We're going to be in uh, 1 Kings chapter 14 this evening, 1 Kings 14. And we're going to be talking about being fake. Uh, what we've seen up to this point is that the, the writer of the, the book of 1 Kings here is preparing the way for Elijah's arrival by describing all the problems that are ultimately going on. Uh, in Israel and Judah at this point, the nation dividing after Solomon's sins and, and hopes of righteousness and an obedient people uh, are quickly being dashed as uh, Jeroboam and the northern nation does not trust in God's promises, but instead establishes uh, idol worship in two locations in his country in order to convince the people that it is more convenient for them to worship in Israel rather than going down to Jerusalem to worship God as God had instructed for them to do. Uh, and we then saw a man of God come to Jeroboam and begin to proclaim a prophecy against that very altar. And Jeroboam doesn't listen to that. He stretches out his hand and calls for his uh, men to seize him. But in the process of calling for this man of God, this prophet to be seized, his arm kind of gets stuck out there and is withered up. Jeroboam pleads to the man of God to pray to God to intercede so that his hand and his arm would be restored. And the man of God does so, and his arm is restored. However, 1 Kings 13 tells us at the very end of that chapter, absolutely nothing changes for Jeroboam. Even with all of the blessings of God, the promises of God, and the healing of God, Jeroboam doesn't change. And that is setting up then this scene as God is trying to show what is wrong with Israel, why it is worthy of destruction, and how God is ultimately going to solve that problem when Elijah arrives on the scene. Chapter 14 of First Kings is particularly fascinating because it is very revealing how things are going to go for the future of both of the nations in this chapter. In the, the first half of chapter 14, the attention turns to Jeroboam yet again, and we are told some Something fairly interesting that uh, seems to uh, be pretty common, and that is Jeroboam now suddenly wants to hear from this man of God. He wants to hear from Ahijah the prophet. Now, Ahijah the prophet was the one who had encountered Jeroboam and told him that he was going to be the king over the ten tribes. And so suddenly Jeroboam wants to hear a word from Ahijah the prophet but for all the wrong reasons. The very first verse tells us that Jeroboam's son falls sick. But Jeroboam knows he can't just go up to Ahijah the prophet. He's not been following the ways of God at all uh, during this time and during his reign. So verse 2 says that he asked his wife to disguise herself to go to Ahijah the prophet and I want you to take some treats and some gifts and some goodies with you as you go. He describes it there in verse 3. Ten loaves, some cakes, a, a jar of honey. Honestly, not really a whole lot considering coming from a king. But take a few of these things with you. Go to Ahijah the prophet and find out what is going to happen to my son. Now, here's a little bit of the humor. 
is Jeroboam is awfully concerned about he can't go see Ahijah the prophet and wants to make sure that his wife is disguised and going to get this answer from Ahijah the prophet. Except the end of verse 4 tells us now Ahijah could not see for his eyes were dim because of his age. Which tells us Jeroboam has not consulted our dear prophet for an awful long time to not know this at this point and is trying to go through all the these elaborate ways to try to deceive the prophet well is his plan going to work well verse 5 the Lord comes to Ahijah and tells him tells behold the wife of Jeroboam is coming to you to inquire of you concerning her son for he is sick Thus and thus you shall say to her. So you can imagine, God comes to Ahijah and says, here's what's going to happen. <laughs> Jeroboam's trying to trick you. He's going to send his wife and send the wife in disguise. And here's what I want you to tell her when she arrives. So the end of verse 5 says, so when she comes, she's pretending to be another woman. Verse 6, when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet, as she came in at the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another? (laughs) I'm glad you went through all that work. (laughs) I know exactly who you are. Uh, And then he proceeds to give his prophetic message. And verse 6 is really a good summary of it. Verse 6 says, I'm charged with unbearable news for you. And the rest of this scene is... Truly unbearable. First, verse 7, God is reminding Jeroboam and says, Because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, yet you have not been like my servant David who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. But you have done evil above all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images provoking me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel, and will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it is all gone. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And any who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. For God has spoken. So first message. Your whole house is going to die a violent death and none of them are going to survive. Talk about, remember we looked at last week, God had said, I'm going to establish your house and it will just be this enduring house. The promise that was made to David is being made to you. And now he says, Jeroboam, you're not going to survive this, nor are any of your descendants, none of your family, slave or anybody who belongs to your house is going to be violently Killed In verse 12, arise therefore, go to your house, and when your feet enter the city, the child shall die. Remember, her whole point of coming was to find out the outcome of the son who has fallen sick. Here's the answer. As soon as you get to the threshold of the door, he's going to die. And notice verse 13, all Israel 
will mourn for him and bury him. For he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. God says, I'm actually going to do him a favor. Whereas the rest of your family is all going to be violently killed and your body strewn all over the place. But because your son Ahijah actually has something pleasing to the Lord within him, he will die and be buried and have a normal end of life versus the whole rest of the house of Jeroboam. Moreover, verse 14, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam today. And henceforth, the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water and root up Israel out of the good land that he gave to their fathers and scatter them among the Euphrates because they have made their Asherim provoking the Lord to anger. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam which he sinned and made Israel to sin. Final two messages. Another king is going to be the one who will arise, who is going to be the one to wipe out the house of Jeroboam. And it is because of Jeroboam. I mean, remember, first king, first king of the northern nation of Israel. Because of his sins, we're told in verse 15, you're not going to stay in the land. Israel will not stay here. They will be scattered beyond the Euphrates, and that's going to be the end of them. That's how significant what Jeroboam had done in back in chapter 12 with this new worship that he established. That's how significant it was to God. That he absolutely says that will be the end of the future of Israel. They'll be scattered beyond the Euphrates. Now, I think it is interesting to spend one more moment with his end that's given to us here. Because you will notice that we are told in verse 17 uh, that everything that the prophet says came to pass. As soon as the wife comes to the threshold, the son dies, all of Israel mourns. And that is all that God wants you to know. About the reign of Jeroboam. Verse 19 says the rest of the acts of Jeroboam that are written some other place. Verse 20, he reigned 22 years and that's all I want you to know. (laughs) 22 year reign. This is the summary of Jeroboam's rule. And I want us to take a step back before we press on to Judah's side of things and look at what happens with Rehoboam, his counterpart, as he reigns in Judah is what these two things that you see in Jeroboam are so interesting because it is highly reflective of how often people attempt to come to God. That the only reason that Jeroboam is looking for a message from God, looking for a word from God, and cares about the prophet Ahijah at all, is because he's having a personal crisis. Because his son is sick, now Jeroboam goes, hey, I need to find out something from God. Now that I have a problem, now I'm going to go see if there's a message from God. Maybe God will give me some good news. Maybe I should consider what he has to say. Let me hear a word from him. Now Jeroboam cares 22 years of a reign and he hasn't cared at all. When the man of God in chapter 13 approached him, he wants him arrested. After the healing, he doesn't change at all. But when the son is sick, well maybe 
I'll see if God has something for me. And I want us to observe that there is something dangerous and sinful about simply seeking God when you're in a crisis. Only when bad times happen. Because that's Jeroboam. He's king. He's living life. He does what he wants. Crisis hits. And all of a sudden he goes, well, I'm going to ask God about that. <laughs> and I hope that you will think about what a terrible insult it is. To treat God as somebody who is there only when you can't solve your own problems. Only when things are so bad. I guess I better get a word from God. I guess I need to find out what He has to say. Just treat Him as the crisis God. He's kind of like an insurance policy. And I'll just kind of run to Him here at this last minute because I've I've tried everything else and it looks like there's all doom. So maybe God will bail me out. And I want you to see the message to Jeroboam was a disastrous message. An unbearable news was given And it is a big warning that so often what we can have the tendency to do is only turn to God when we're in trouble. We only pray when things are bad. We only go to God when we want something from Him or we want for Him to do something or we finally realize that uh, we can't control our life events anymore. Things are beyond our control. So I guess maybe I should ask God about that. And what is so interesting to me as you think about that is so often what we fail to realize is God always is using trials and suffering and circumstances to cause us to come back to Him, but not temporarily. And so often that's what we do. Crisis happens. We run to God. God wants that to happen. When the crisis is averted, it's back to what we were always doing before. Oh, thank you, God, for bailing me out of that. Now let me get back to living my life however I want to live and do whatever I want to do. And I think it is important for us to really look at the insulting nature of treating God that way. Imagine if the only time your child ever wanted to talk to you was only for you to bail them out of some difficulty in their life. Didn't want a relationship with you. Didn't want to talk to you. Didn't want anything to do with you. But if they were in a bind, hey, would you bail me out? Oh, thanks for bailing me out. Back to what I'm doing. Won't talk to you again. I know insulting that is. And yet we do that with God. We're just streaming along and rolling along and living life how we want to. And oh, Christ says, hey, God, here you are. You're going to help me out, right? And in the graciousness of God, he does sometimes answer the prayer that we were asking only for us to then do what? Back to what we're doing. We need to be so careful that we do not treat God as a crisis God, which is what Jeroboam is doing here. And not only that, the other picture that is given there in verse 9, so interesting, not only does he say at the beginning of verse 9, that you have done evil above all who were before you. As we go through this series, just as as an aside, remember that line, because we're going to say that a lot. (laughs) And it will give some magnitude if everybody who comes along is doing more evil than was ever done before. That's quite a scary thing. Already Jeroboam is wearing the mantle of no one has ever done worse than him. (laughs) He's at the top of awful. And notice the end of verse 9. 
provoking me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Here is God saying, here's what our relationship is like. Let me explain to you what the relationship looks like. You think you're in charge, you're in front, and you've thrown me to the back. You've just tossed me to the back. That's how things are. You're doing you, and you're doing what you want to do, and you have cast me aside. You've just put me at the back. No interest in a relationship with me. And ultimately, what I would like for us to see in this is that God's not fooled by what's going on. Here is the prophet saying, I know what you've done. Here's God's words to you. You've thrown me to the back. You have put me behind you. And I want us just to stop and think about why that's so important. Because God is always telling us this important message. It's not that God has turned his back on you. Is that we're turning our backs on him. It was like, well, where is God? Well, here's God's answer to Jeroboam. You threw me in the back. You're the one that turns your back on me. You're the one that won't put me first. You're the one that won't listen to me. And I think this is such an important picture that is given to us here is so often we fail to realize that we are the ones that are choosing to break the relationship. We are the ones who are turning our backs on God. And when you think about all that God had done for Jeroboam, remember, Jeroboam is merely a servant in Solomon's house. He's just a servant. He's just average guy. He's nobody. And God says, I'm going to make you king over ten of my tribes. And I'm going to give you the same sure promises about your dynasty and your legacy like I gave to David. All that you need to do is follow me. And Jeroboam's response was to throw God behind his back. And say, hey, thanks for making me king. Now I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And it's so easy to take the blessings of God and do that and turn our backs upon God. And what I want us to see with Jeroboam that may be true of us is ultimately this is a fake relationship, isn't it? Oh, now I want a word from God. Well, God's not fooled. There's there's no relationship here. You have cast me behind your back. We don't have a relationship. We're not face to face. We're not talking. There's nothing here. You've cast me away. And so God responds and says, judgment needs to come. Now, our hope would be the next paragraph goes to Rehoboam and we think, all right, now Rehoboam, it's going to be better. Here's the southern nation. Here's Jerusalem where the temple is. Here's where true worship belongs. Maybe things are going to be so much better for the southern nation, right? Well, verse 21. Now Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city that the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Nama the Ammonite. Now, 
Let's stop there because you might just read that and think nothing significant just happened. But actually there was. <laughs> Something very important was just said. There's never throwaway information in the scriptures. And that's certainly the case here. And after describing the reign of Rehoboam. Alright, he's 41 years old. He reigned 17 years. Here it all is. And his mother is an Ammonite. Now, why did you want to tell us that? And to prove that it's not a throwaway point, look how the account ends. Jump down to verse 31 and it says, When he died, his mother's name was Nama the Ammonite. I was like, hey, wait a minute, you just said that ten verses ago. You didn't have to repeat that, except you're trying to tell us something. And so already sandwiched between, the, the story of Rehoboam is sandwiched between his mother is an Ammonite. And it's already telling you that Rehoboam's situation is not going to be any better because his mother is part of the legacy of Solomon and all the foreign women and how that turned his heart away from God into the idolatry and married an Ammonite, not an Israelite. It is an Ammonite that is his mother. And the rest of the paragraph shows this to be true. Verse 22, and Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed more than that of their fathers had done. Sound like the northern nation condemnation? Is Judah sounding any better? Now Judah, they've done worse than the forefathers before, any of the ancestors. Even more so, listen to verse 23 in describing the things that that have happened. It says, they also built for themselves high places and pillars and asherim on every high hill and on every green tree. Judah is no different. Remember, we talked about chapter 12. Oh, Israel, why didn't you stand up and worship God properly? Why didn't you say to Jeroboam, no, we will not worship in Dan and Bethel. We will go to Jerusalem and worship just as God has said. Well, Rehoboam comes along and there's idolatry strewn all over Judah as well. To say the words that high places, pillars, asherim poles, are on every high hill, every green tree. And that's not the half of it. Verse 24 tells us that they set up shrines and temples for prostitution all throughout the land of Judah. Sexual sin running rampant all throughout the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord had drove out before the people of God. Remember why the Canaanites were driven out? It's not because God loved Israel and hated Canaan. It's because the Canaanites were worthy of judgment and all the sins that they were committing. And God said, when the time of their judgment comes, I'm going to give you their land instead. And now Judah is acting just like the people who lived in the land prior, the people of the world, the Canaanites, the abominations of the nations. And what you have as its big example of wickedness 
begins in verse 25 where we're told in the fifth year of Rehoboam's reign, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. Underline this. He took away everything. I want you to notice The king of Egypt now comes and attacks and is able to get all the way to Jerusalem, takes the gold and the riches of the palace and of the temple. He took it all, it says. And not only that, here is a figure of the whole scene. The middle of verse 26 He also took away the shields of gold that Solomon had made. And King Rehoboam made in their place shields of bronze and committed them to the hands of the officers of the guard who kept the door of the king's house. It just simply symbolizes so much. First, you are getting a picture of the fading glory of the kingdom already. Solomon has gold everywhere, even gold shields. And Shishak comes and takes it all away, plunders the land, plunders the city, plunders the temple, plunders the palace. And it's symbolized by Rehoboam goes and he just kind of puts up some bronze shields. Let's just let's just paint it over. It's all okay. We'll put some shields back up. It's not gold, though. Bronze. Fading glory. Which tells you a couple of things. One, you know God's not at that temple for this to happen. That they have turned their back on God as well. Remember, God had made the promises. He'd take care of the enemies. There'd be peace in the land. Why did this happen except they had disobeyed God? And what you are witnessing is a reverse exodus. Remember, when Israel leaves Egypt, they plunder the people. And go to the promised land. Now the people of Israel are disobedient. And Egypt comes and plunders the people of Judah and Jerusalem and the temple and the palace. And takes it back to Egypt. This imagery is just showing with this replacement scene that the glory is gone. That there is nothing here Good about the southern nation in picture to the northern nation. In fact, when you look at verse 29, notice that's all God wants you to know about Rehoboam. There's nothing else. He reigns for 17 years, but this is the one thing he wants to give you. That he was just as fake as Jeroboam about his relationship with God. Made it all look real pretty. But at the end of the day, they were acting just like the nations and acting just like the peoples. Let's bring some application together here, because what I want us to consider is really one simple message. Is the warning of putting up a facade is that what we see in the northern nation of Israel as well as in the southern nation of Judah is that you have all kinds of people wearing the name, worshiping at the temple, but they are as fake as could be. Both northern nation and southern nation, it says they committed more sins than the peoples before them. 
And yet, they're trying to portray as if they're the people of God. Hey, we're the people of God. Jeroboam has a crisis. What does he do? Hey, God, help me out. Rehoboam, hey, I've got the temple here, right? God loves us, right? And in both instances, what you are seeing is a facade that they are simply acting like the world. In fact, arguably acting worse than the world. For note they know, and yet continuing to press into sin. The big deal is that they have a fake relationship. And this is my simple question to you tonight. Is if we have a fake relationship with God as well. That it is so easy to paint the facade, put up the bronze shields, act like we care about God, do enough certain things so that people think that we look like we care about the things of God. But ultimately, what we do is what we want to do. We live how we want to live. And we pull God in, you know, on a crisis or when we need to do just enough to make it look like we've got the shields up and the bronze shields are there on the temple, right? Everything looks like we're good. But actually, it's all fake. One New Testament passage. As the Apostle Paul was coming to a close of his letter to the Galatians and he was warning them about the sins of the flesh and reminding them about what the fruit of the Spirit would be, he reminds them and says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. And I just want to emphasize what this chapter is showing for both nations, Israel and Judah. For Jeroboam and for Rehoboam and for their constituents that lived at that time, they were going to reap what they sowed. And they could pretend all day, be fake all day, have the facade all day. But God was not fooled. God was not mocked. Jeroboam comes running, hey God, what about my son? And how sad to hear. The son you're asking about is the best thing you have in this world. He actually pleased me. But because of your horrible abominations, the whole house... Everyone will be worthy of judgment. God's not mocked. We cannot pretend with God. We cannot be fake to God. He knows if we only look to him if we, when we are in trouble. And he knows if we are casting him behind our back. That's what this big message is about. Is what is your relationship with God look like? Does it look like the failures of Jeroboam and Rehoboam? Or do we truly love God and seek him with all of our heart? Final question. Ask yourself what you are sowing to. Are you sowing to please the flesh? For that reaps destruction. Or are you sowing to please God? 
For that, there is reward. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, such challenging pictures, Lord, that we see in these two kings that you appointed to rule over your people. And Lord, we clearly see that the message you wanted us to to gather from them is how false and fake they were in pretending to care about you in your ways. And Lord, I pray that this evening that you would challenge our hearts and that your word would penetrate deeply into our lives and that we would truly evaluate if we are true worshipers of you or simply have a facade. Lord, I pray that there would be honest answers in our hearts and that you would encourage us that if we have been false to seek you with all of our heart, that you would encourage that, you would stir us up in that, you would push us to a repentance, Lord, to move away from pleasing our own flesh and following our own ways to following you. God, forgive us for the times that we have treated you as a crisis, God. When we've only looked to you because we can't solve it ourselves and we've tried all that we can do and we finally, as last resort, turn to you, forgive us for the times when we've done that. And Lord, forgive us for the times when we have cast you behind our back, blazing ahead to the things that we want to do rather than following you faithfully. So Lord, forgive us, encourage our hearts, challenge our hearts, and Lord, help us tear down any facade that we may have so that we can have a true relationship with you and ultimately eternity with you one day. In Jesus' name, amen. We are going to sing an invitation song and you want to come to the Lord to turn away from your sins. We want to offer that to you, that you can be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you have been walking with Him, but you're honest and you say, it's been it's been a facade. Would you let us help you? You can talk to us afterward. We'd love to encourage you and try to help you walk in a way that is faithful to God. In any way we can help you, won't you come while we stand and while we